This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. The professor is out this week. He's doing a Bull bear debate with Robert Schiller, one of his longtime friends, uh, talking about the the markets and Siegel's the classic bull and, and Schiller the bear. Although they've been coming closer together on some of our, our recent conversations that we had Bob on our program, uh, but we'll get back to Professor Siegel next week. This week we have Jason Guthrie, who's the head of capital markets and digital assets for Wisdom Tree in Europe. Uh, Jason works for Wisdom Tree Ireland, which is a subsidiary of Wisdom Tree Investments. Are we doing a bull bear debate? Here uh, in, in just a moment, but please note I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Our discussion is not tied to the offers of investment products, and the views of our guests are not those of Wizards affiliates. So, one of the big topics, the hot topics of the year, has um, been Bitcoin. Uh, we've had Bitcoin conversations in our show. Even just a few weeks ago, we had uh, Ari Paul talking about his case on Bitcoin and crypto. Uh, but today, we're going to do really a much more uh, sort of fun, interactive discussion. We've got Alex Picard of Research Affiliates, who's got a lot of his own personal experience in Bitcoin and, and just wrote a big thought piece on his views on, on Bitcoin. We also have Jason Guthrie, I mentioned, head of capital markets and digital assets for Wisdom Tree. So we're going to talk a little bit about Jason's view, Alex's view. Uh, but Alex, welcome to Behind the Markets. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's going to be a fun conversation. Maybe you could start us off with a little bit uh, for our listeners, your background, how you first came into uh cryptocurrencies and a little bit just to set the stage before we get into any of the views, but some of your, your past experience, uh, what you're doing now, what you're doing back uh, before joining Research Affiliates. Okay, sure. Um, so I, I first really, uh, you know, heard about Bitcoin in 2013 when I was doing the Master of Financial Engineering program at UCLA. And uh, that year, Bitcoin was on a bit of a bull run. And, you know, everybody in my class thought it was a bubble. And I sort of thought to myself, if everybody in this financial engineering class uh, thinks that this is a bubble, probably no one outside of finance even knows what this is. You know, I dug into it a little bit more. And back then, I was really excited about Bitcoin, you know, as a currency, as a currency native to the Internet. And, um, you know, bought sort of towards the end of that bubble in 2013, but kept my eye on it. And then in 2015, when it looked like Bitcoin was not dead, that the chatter was coming back into it, I... Um, you know, basically put kind of went all in and started advocating for it, um, you know, to all my friends, to all my coworkers. And, you know, back then people still were not uh, believing in Bitcoin like the way they do today, you know, back at like $500 per coin or so. Um, so, you know, I, I had some windfall returns mid 2017. I decided I wanted to mine Bitcoin to, you know, protect the network and uh, keep it alive for future generations. And, then I kind of went down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and uh, sort of became a little disillusioned with it. And, and it's like transition from an online currency to like a digital gold store of value system. Um, and then with the fall, so there, there's a long story about the mining, but it didn't work out. And so I uh, went back to my job at Research Affiliates and uh, really don't regret a thing. Well, that's great. We're going to, we'll drill into a lot of that. We'll talk about some of the mining issues, but let's get people just to get a chance to know Jason as well. Jason, tell our listeners a little bit about your background, how you came to Wisdom Tree Europe, uh, what you do over there. Uh, yeah, sure. No problem, Jeremy. So I've, I've worked at Wisdom Tree in Europe for five years, kind of heading up the capital markets function. So dealing with all of the, you know, market ecosystem uh, connectivity kind of stuff. Prior to that, I was at, at Deutsche Bank doing a similar role. So I've been in sort of traditional markets or ETFs for basically 10 years um, now. 
I have more recently taken on responsibility for our uh, digital assets initiatives um, over here in Europe. And, you know, this I kind of got to doing digital assets or, or Bitcoin really um, organically. Um, I, I was probably a skeptic if you go back five years on on Bitcoin, on its potential, you know, I think I've probably been quoted in saying that it was like tulips, but I had a couple of mates that were really invested in it. I have, you know, a friend that did a, a, a blog series for Coindesk that is, is just a huge advocate for it. And over time, they, they kind of wore me down to the point that I, you know, did a lot of self-reading on this. And the more I read, the more I kind of became convinced about the, the potential and, you know, possibilities of, of both, you know, something like Bitcoin as well as the underlying technology. Um, I was kind of very fortunate in that uh, a few people around the firm here at Wisdom Tree had similar ideas and wanted us to dig into this. And so I've had the opportunity to then weave that into to my professional career as well, as we've kind of looked at bringing product to market here in Europe, as well as kind of working on um, broader digital asset initiatives, how we can kind of weave the blockchain into, you know, asset management more generally and what that means for financial services and consumers. Yeah, there's going to be a lot there, I'm sure. Um, but l let's go back to Alex. Uh, why don't you talk about the the mining experience? I mean, that's one of the uh, for the people who are who are new and uh, what is Bitcoin? What is this crypto asset? Talk about the role of miners, your experience being a miner, um, and and what why you think where you think things went wrong, the risk to all that being energy, one of the key risks. But maybe talk a little bit about your experience. Yeah, sure. So yeah, mining is how the network is secured and uh, no, maybe a better term for it is really just payment processing. Um, the blockchain is like a, a pro, uh, you know, there's a Bitcoin protocol in which uh, transactions are recorded to the blockchain, which is just an external ledger. You can think about it like, you know, banks have internal ledgers that keep track of who owns what money. The blockchain is an external ledger, which is public for anybody to look at. And it keeps track of who owns what Bitcoins. Um, you know, if Visa is the payment processor, but if Visa goes down, there's no one to back up Visa on the Visa network. But the, you know, cool thing about Bitcoin and the Bitcoin blockchain and blockchains, proof of work blockchains, I would say in general, is that if one payment processor goes down, there's backups available, like multiple miners across the globe who can process the transactions. So, you know, I thought this was very cool. I wanted to become a Bitcoin miner and, you know, keep the network um, up, up to date, you know, keep the blockchain up to date. Uh, but what happened was when I was mining, there was talk about moving transactions off the chain. They wanted to scale the blockchain by doing off-chain scaling, meaning, meaning not recording transactions to the blockchain. And so as a miner, you know, I wanted to have as many transactions on the chain as possible because you get paid a little bit of a you know, transaction fee for each transaction. And so I saw this sort of shift away from using the blockchain to wanting to use off-chain um, ways of scaling. And, uh, you know, I sort of disagreed with that and the direction that Bitcoin was going. And so, you know, when prices took a fall and, okay, so I was, the, the, the brief story about mining in Washington is that there was a huge influx of miners moving to Washington. And the local electricity there is about three cents per kilowatt hour because it's subsidized by, the, by a dam on the Columbia River, which provides most of the electricity for the Pacific Northwest. There was such a rush of miners there that wanted power, and um, they sort of put a strain on the grid. And even though the local utility company put this um, like outline in place for you know, how much electricity you, sh you could use, they eventually came to my door and told me, like, I had to cut it off immediately or else, you know, bad things would happen. And so I, I had to shut down, and I briefly moved my miners to Chicago for a bit of time. But it's a very competitive business, and with the fall in Bitcoin prices and with the rise of more and more miners joining the network, it just wasn't profitable anymore for me as, like, a relatively small player to um, keep going. This is a very interesting conversation. There was a conversation that uh, Tyrone Ross, who a lot of uh, people follow here in, in sort of Twitter world, um, was talking about some of the ESG nature of of crypto mining, and that so a lot of these sort of 
new sources of environmental power are sort of generally unprofitable and, and that miners can come be a source of demand for sort of new electricity projects. Uh, it's sort of interesting to hear your experience of people coming to your door and saying to stop. Um, I think there's a mm-hmm. talk about why China, you know, a lot of the mining is in China because of some of their electricity costs. Um, any other experience you know of people of that kind of experience happening to, to, to miners in the U.S.? Well, well, certainly when the, if there is excess, you know, because in general, people don't live right next to the hydroelectric dam. So the power needs to go on transmission lines and then they, you know, ship it to cities, you know, far away. And as it's on the transmission line, it loses um, its power. Um, so it makes a lot of sense to sell electricity right next to where it's generated. So if a large Bitcoin miner wants to, if there's, a, you know, excess power there, it makes sense for the um power company to sell power locally there but if the grid if like if you're in a more of a residential area if you're mining from garages um you could put a little strain on like the local um neighborhood and you know that was something that i didn't really account for when i got into it and that was sort of the point behind my whole piece that i recently wrote which is you know know what you're investing in and know what you're getting into and um you know if you think that bitcoin is going to uh, you know, be used for payments for gasoline, for coffee, you know, to pay your mortgage, I would say it's unlikely that it's to happen, even though there will be people out there that will still tell you that. That was the old narrative, but the narrative has shifted. And so that's sort of like a, uh, you know, sort of like troubling to me. So, uh, so question, Alex, isn't, isn't that a big question between like, you know, big key, big B Bitcoin, the protocol, the network versus... Bitcoin, the asset, right? We can still use it as a, it can still be used as a, a store of value and a means of payment, even if that payment's not processed on the network. I mean, it, it's, it's sort of, I don't feel like it's a, correct to call it a store of value if it can lose 80% of its value in like a period of months, which is done on, you know, a number of occasions. Um, you know, store of value is usually like referred to something that is stable in value and that people write contracts, right? So, there's tons and tons of contracts written with the U.S. dollar, you know, long-term contracts. You can buy a lease or get into a lease. You know, you're going to pay, you know, $2,000 a month. You can set, you know, $24,000 aside, and that value is literally stored there. But there's no one writing contracts and executing business deals using Bitcoin. So it's, I, think, I don't think it's correct to call it a store of value. Let me just reintroduce yeah, our guests I mean, here. We're, ta- we're talking with Alex Picard of, of Re- Research Affiliates, Jason Guthrie, head of digital uh, capital markets for Wisdom Tree in Europe. Uh, go ahead, Jason. Sorry, I was just going to say, look, I can. Uh, there's uh, maybe a, a point around kind of adoption and development of a store of value, but I mean, just to finish off the transactional one, right? We can, um, if, if we, if you think about it, like as a as a potential to kind of fill in that role as something that that is transactional again. It doesn't necessarily need to be on network, right? Like I think you mentioned earlier, you had a problem with off-chain scaling. Do you want to give a bit of like dig into that? And because I'm I'm typically a fan of of solutions like that that help advance the asset. Well, I think the solution would have just been to use the blockchain and scale the blockchain. Um, when when you have off-chain scaling, that you know necessarily reduce, results in less transparency. So I don't I don't see the benefit of off-chain scaling versus on-chain scaling. And you know, quickly go back to the power consumption thing. It is true that Bitcoin consumes a lot of power, um, but if there, if the block if the miners allowed more transactions to occur on BTC, then the effective cost uh, in terms of energy per transaction would go way way down. Um, so you know, I would advocate for BTC to raise the scaling limit. But that was like what a lot of debate occurred um, in 2017 and then the creation of Bitcoin Cash. And then later, even in Bitcoin Cash, there was fights about scaling and that resulted in the creation of Bitcoin SV, which, um, you know, allows for massive on-chain scaling, but it doesn't seem like anybody's actually interested in that, which is, you know, kind of the whole puzzling thing to me because that's what people seem to be into when I first bought into Bitcoin in, you know, 2013, but now it's... um, not, not talked about as much. Like people like Michael Saylor, you know, of MicroStrategy, he'll go on CNBC and say, Bitcoin is not for payments. It's for holding. It's not for spending. I was just going to say, it can be, you know, it doesn't need to be all things to all people. 
Jason, maybe you could talk a little bit. Um, I mean, you guys focus in Europe a lot on gold um, and the sort of narrative on is Bitcoin the new gold. How do you think about, you know, when the, the investing proposition, there's some of the protocol stuff and we'll get back into the protocol stuff when he comes back. But mm. as you think about the asset case and, you know, his comment that the, loses 80 percent is a store of value, that's hard to case. How do you think about that as, as new gold? Yes, yeah, so I think the, the comparison to gold is one that gets made uh, pretty frequently. And this concept of a, of a store of value is, is an interesting one. And I, the point that, you know, something that is volatile or has lost or can lose 80% of its value being, being difficult to, to kind of view as that, I, I do take that. Um, but I kind of come at it from maybe, maybe a slightly different angle. And, you know, there are, there are two viewpoints here that I think are overlapping. So one is, what we're really witnessing with with Bitcoin, in, in my my view, is the birth of a of a new store of value asset. Um, what really makes something high potential for a store of value is, you know, if if it can't be counterfeited, if it can't be more of it can't be created easily, um, it's easily transferable um, and it's durable. And Bitcoin ticks the box for all of all of these things. Beyond that, you need to get people coming to it on on mass and kind of using it in a in a particular way. But that takes time. There's an adoption curve to to us getting there, and I think volatility is is part and parcel with adoption of something brand new. Bitcoin's nascent, so this is is going to take time. And a lot of people coming to it are coming to it with that point of view. They see it as its potential for store of value and want to invest in the growth of, of that store of value asset. Um, the other angle when we think about it like gold is, you know, the investment rationale over the last two years that we've seen people allocating to gold has been around fiat currency devaluation, right? Quantitative easing, money printing um, is really driving down the value that's actually retained in, in a given dollar at a given euro at a given pound, right? So going to an asset with a fixed supply, really appealing for investors. A lot of money gone into precious metals for that. Bitcoin's put in the same bucket there. Now, if you ask people that are you know, very negative on the value retained in fiat currencies, and you ask them about, you know, the volatility that they see in Bitcoin, the, the answer is, you know, well, what's your vantage point? What's actually moving? If we see Bitcoin run up 300%, is that Bitcoin being volatile or is that the dollar being volatile and losing its value? Um, and I think there's an interplay between this adoption curve as well as, you know, what's your vantage point? Uh, yeah, the Research Affiliates Group does a lot of publishing on, uh, and, and some of Alex's colleagues have been talking about like w different bubbles in markets over time. What defines a bubble, and, and where do you think? And, and sort of, put, some people call Bitcoin a bubble, but you know, I think one of the overall things of driving prices is 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 that adoption curve, as you talked about, like a, where you are. So there's, we know there's 21 million fixed amount of Bitcoin. There's some new supply coming, and there's less new supply coming every year, but. There's this fixed amount of Bitcoin and how many people own Bitcoin. Uh, if you do some random surveys of your friends and coworkers, you know, I, I, it's sort of interesting questions um, where we are in the adoption curve. But where, where, where do you see, Jason, as you're talking to institutions across Europe, how do you see institutions there having adopted it? Where are the conversations like as you're talking to different institutions? So, uh, look, I think I see three you know, I can bucket the investment rationale analysis into three, right? So one is what we just talked about, the protection against devaluation of fiat currency or inflation protection from a fixed supply asset um, is really appealing. The second one is from a portfolio diversification perspective, like a lot of work's been done on Bitcoin's correlation to other asset classes. And but really, it's, it's a truly uncorrelated asset class. Like if you look at equities, fixed income, commodities, like hedge funds, real estate, whatever, uh, it truly is uncorrelated. And, you know, if you ask any portfolio manager, they'll tell you the only free lunch in the markets is diversification. Um, so finding a tool to really deliver this is is really valuable. I think it comes at an interesting cycle in the markets as well, where like cross-asset correlations post the, the financial crisis just kind of went through the roof. They've pulled back off their peaks of 16, 17, but historically still super high. So this is a tool, super valuable to a lot of guys in the institutional space over here. Um, the third reason really is just to invest in the growth of um, of the space generally, right? And whether that's people have a view on uh, the growth of Bitcoin or the price appreciation discreetly, or they use Bitcoin as a proxy for the crypto space or digital assets more generally. Um, I've, I've heard plenty of people talking about they're putting money to Bitcoin for exactly that reason. 
along that vein as well around the idea of investing in Bitcoin's or sorry, blockchain's potential and the potential disruption that it um, represents is the idea of kind of hedging their financial exposure as well. If they see blockchain is potentially disrupting the business model of banks and they've got a big financial exposure through owning S&P 500 or Eurostock 600 or whatever it might be, then a small allocation to this seems like a reasonable risk mitigant. Um, so typically I see people falling into those three buckets. I mean, you also asked, where are we in terms of adoption? I think we're at the start of the curve, right? Um, it's moving super quickly. If I think back 18 months ago when I'm having institutional conversations, I was talking to the small nimble end of the institutional market, single family offices and the like. Now, the inquiries and interest that we get kind of runs the gambit of the institutional spectrum. So it's not just these small nimble guys, but private banking networks, multi-asset managers, I even get calls from pension funds. So you can observe the breadth of client that is interested in this and wants to look at it is, is widening rapidly. Now, you know, it coincides with the market uh, move that we've seen in the last six months, and it's definitely an influence in where we're going to settle, let's see, but it, it's growing rapidly, and I don't see this turning around. This is a trend that's here to stay, in my view. Alex, we, Jason was just giving his case on sort of the the, the reasons for Bitcoin um, on, on sort of the bullish side. If we were to summarize, I mean, you had your, your personal experience with the mining, we talked a little bit about the protocols, but if you were to try to summarize distinctly, then we could drill into some of the points in detail. If you were to say what makes you more of a Bitcoin skeptic today, if you were to sort of, I don't know if you want to sort of say there's three reasons or whatever the number of reasons you say high level and we could drill into the details, but like what are the, the big reasons why you'd be a, a skeptic today? Well, you know, that's, that's a great question. Um, I will just note that the narrative that Jason, um, you know, just told is very powerful. And the idea of the fixed supply, you know, ultimately that's what got me interested from the very beginning, but I saw it as a fixed supply you know, currency that could benefit people living in Argentina and Zimbabwe, places with runaway hyperinflation. They could, you know, potentially use Bitcoin to, you know, do everyday transactions, buy a cup of coffee, um, you know, buy lunch, just pay for gas. You know, it could be used, um, you know, for anything because the fees would be very low. Now, when we're talking about fees that are like $10, $20 per transaction, it becomes really like just a tool for more or less like, you know, the more uh, wealthy, well-to-do um, people. And, you know, that might be great if the narrative stays um, that Bitcoin is, a, you know, inflation hedge and, you know, very, very wealthy people can use Bitcoin to store their wealth. Um, you know, certainly there's, like, that's a product in the marketplace. You know, we still do, um, you know, have a market of goods and services in which people are in constant competition. So if that um, idea for Bitcoin is more powerful and it catches on and it appears to have ca- caught on, then, you know, if that's what you want to invest your money in, that's all the more power to you. But I'm just a little bit disappointed that it's, that it's pivoted from something that could really benefit everybody to now just something that can be used to hedge um, against inflation for wealthy people. That's interesting because my friend Tyrone Ross, who we've had on the show here and, and it talks a lot about you know he he's got into it for what he calls banking the unbanked and uh, and for that general population. Jason, do you have a response to the transaction fees that you and I were talking about related ideas this yeah. week? I mean, what, how, what what do you think about the transaction fees and how the 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 protocols can engage on these type of transactions more generally? It, look, it's actually it, it's a really good point, and I agree. It's something that the the kind of networks need to be cognizant of and. You know, I mean, it's it's not just the protocol, but the ecosystem that, that gets built up around it. I, I, I'm not a purist in that I think, you know, hey, Bitcoin's got to deliver all of the solutions, but I'm very positive on the ecosystem and the services that, that kind of get built around it. And transaction costs is, a, is, I think, a big part of that. And if they grow over time and are unchecked or there's not a solution for it, then, yeah, it can, it can definitely depress sort of the value add that it gives to people in that parts of the world. I mean... You know, at, at ten dollars, it's always going to be relative. People moving very small amounts of money—that's that's huge. But it's not going to be. I don't think that at, at ten, twenty, thirty, something like this, it's it's going to be prohibitive for everybody extracting value out of it. Um, one of the use cases that I've heard people, you know, talk about a lot is cross-border remittance and the role that something a decentralized non-bank uh, currency can perform in that. 
And so if you look at like cross-border remittance in Southeast Asia, where you have a big swath of the population that works in one country but has a family in another, cross-border remittance can be, you know, 8, 10, 12%. Um, numbers of like a $10 transaction fee, if you're sending $200, which is, again, a reasonably modest amount, but that would be a 50% reduction in your fee. And so there are still lots of use cases, I think, in parts of the world as these things grow. But Alex is right to highlight it, that this is something that needs to be considered in the way it's going about. Now, I'm not as against sort of off-chain solutions for it that utilise it. I think the ecosystem and the system that can emerge from this kind of technology, from this innovation to be very powerful and whether it sits in the core protocol itself or whether it's delivered from some off-chain scaling via the Lightning Network or the like, I'm not as worried about, but I think it is something that people need to be to be cognizant of when, when they're looking for solutions via blockchain or via Bitcoin. So, so Alex, I guess the one your first point on the skeptics is just the changing role of of Bitcoin and going away from what you originally thought of. Is there other risks that uh, I know one of the risks that we I, I've seen a lot of people on online talk about is is Tether. I know Tether's been in the news of uh-huh. late. Uh, maybe you want to give some background on what is Tether? Is yeah. that a real risk? Um, and, and what's going on there? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I do think Tether is a real risk. Um, Tether is a stable coin. It, it was intended when the Tether white paper came out, um, they wrote in it that every dollar of a Tether uh, coin that was going to be issued on the Ethereum blockchain um, would be backed by $1 of assets in a bank account owned by the Tether LLC, uh, Tether Limited. Um, so the idea was that you have um, a stable, really, you know, more correctly, call it a, a store of value but now this dollar instead of um you know you could send it overseas you could send it to through exchanges you could do whatever you wanted with it it was a dollar but it was on the blockchain um there has been some people suing tether and just a lot of speculation regarding whether or not tether is actually backed so are they actually receiving money before creating new tether coins or are they just minting tether coins out of thin air which and, you know, to me, it sounds like counterfeiting money. And the, the, the story goes that they create Tether coins, they buy Bitcoin with it on exchanges that trade Tether. And Tether trades at like one-to-one with the U.S. dollar. So through arbitrage mechanisms, the price of Bitcoin in terms of U.S. dollars go up, and then they can cash out at a higher price. And then they could now conceivably have money in their bank account and claim that it was always backed. But it was through a, like a, you know, a backdoor sort of situation. And if the rise of Bitcoin, there was a paper written in 2017 from some researchers at University of Texas, Austin, my alma mater, that claimed that much of the rise in 2017 was due to Tether. Um, and it, once again, we've seen Tether issuance go from like about, uh, like I think I want to say, Five or ten billion dollars during this um, bull market to now over 35 billion, which is a small amount relative to the market cap of Bitcoin. But you have to think about you know the marginal um, price increase per dollar of demand, and if they can kind of create artificial demand through issuing Tether and buying Bitcoin with it, then if and when Tether ever um, you know was shut down, what would the price of Bitcoin be without that sort of artificial support? Uh, but just recently, the New York Attorney General um, banned Tether and Bitfinex from trading in New York, which seems like a bad omen. But it, on the other hand, it's it, that sort of case is now over with, and it's just New York. It's not the you know the whole world. So um, well, we'll see. I mean, if the if the demand is really there, if Elon Musk is buying Bitcoin and, and you know the hedge funds and pension funds that Jason mentioned are buying Bitcoin. It could just be, you know, a small story that really isn't uh, a large portion of the demand. Yeah, I think we'll come back to this a little bit, but uh, we have both Alex and Jason for the full show. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Markets. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We are talking Tether, and Tether is one of these uh, sort of quote-unquote stable coins that has been bubbling up in in sort of as a risk factor. Is it, uh, as, as Alex said, is it is it sort of counterfeiting dollars, not really backed by anything? Um, Jason, do you want to weigh in on Tether since we sort of ended with Alex there to start the second half there? What Any, any views on Tether and, and what you heard from Alex? 
Yeah, sure. So um, I'll, I'll start by saying, like, I, I'm not a big fan of Tether. Um, I think that it, as a stable coin, like, they haven't done enough to promote kind of transparency or build faith or trust in kind of what they're doing or the assets that back their product. I mean, they made a big loan, a very public big loan to assist a company out of the assets that was supposed to be behind it, which is, a, a, you know, best terrible business practice. Um, but where I where I struggle to kind of make the connection is that Tether is fundamental to the Bitcoin price rally. Um, I get, you know, the idea that people would make Tether out of thin air, buy Bitcoin, get it back to dollars and put that dollars into into um, into the, the Tether bank account, I don't find compelling because in that transaction, there's both a buy and a sell of Bitcoin. And if you think you've got a market impact from buying a million worth of Bitcoin to the upside, you've got the same impact when you're selling it on the downside. Um, you know, it might turn out that Heather is somewhat of a Ponzi scheme. And if it was to blow up, that's really bad for the market. But again, I, I can't kind of draw the line that it is, is pumping it up. I think that the Tether cross, the demand for Tether comes a lot from the Tether Bitcoin cross. And that's definitely the case. So when Bitcoin's in vogue, more people hold Tether to trade the Tether Bitcoin cross on, you know, Binance, where that's the major Bitcoin cross that is traded. But the demand is inherently to hold Bitcoin and to trade it from the dollar pair. Tether is simply the mechanism by which that exchange uses to do it. So if Bitcoin volumes are going through the roof because demand's through the roof, well, the supply of Tether goes up as well. And conversely so, cash is going to come out on the way down. And I'd say that that is more likely the relationship between the two. Now, maybe Tether does blow up and it turns out to be as bad as some people have made it out to be. But I think that demand and connectivity will be filled by something else, right? Coinbase is the biggest exchange by Bitcoin volume um, for the dollar pair cross, and they don't allow Tether on there, yet that market still functions super well and you know roughly a third of the volume goes through it. So it's completely possible that you have a better alternative for a dollar stable coin, USDC is a good example, um, or simply trading the, the, the fiat cross is going to be feasible to fill the gap if Tether does fall apart. I mean, if it does blow up, that's destabilizing for digital assets generally. I said at the start, like, would love to see the, the issuers of things like stable coins to go in above and beyond to build trust and be transparent and, and really institutionalize best practice in the space. Tether's fallen short. If they fall apart. It, it is a meaningful part of the ecosystem as it stands at the moment, and that would probably send ripples with you know Bitcoin's price dropping. But is it fundamental to the price level? I find it really hard to draw that line. Hey, Alex, uh, any response there? Quick question. Yeah, sure. Um, Gentlemen. I just wonder if you have any insight as to why there's so much more trading on the Tether BTC cross than USD BTC. And why would people, you know, go through the extra hoop of first, you know, buying Tether to then buy Bitcoin? Why not just use their USD and trade on, um, you know, like Coinbase or Gemini or any of the other exchanges that have the USD cross? Sure. Well, so I think... I haven't got a particular insight, you know, to this, to the mechanics of, of particular exchanges, but I think a lot of that volume goes through the Binance exchange and the cross that they kind of promote is is the Bitcoin Tether cross. Now, my understanding, again, without any particular inside knowledge to the way Binance works, is that structurally it's just way easier for them to hold a stable coin in a digital asset sort of ecosystem tech stack rather than also running a fiat account in parallel to that digital stack. So if you've got a digitized dollar, fine. If, if, if it trades one-to-one, -one, you trade the Bitcoin Tether cross, that works well for their, their ecosystem, and it trades for that example. I think you could easily replace Tether with USDC, and it would work just as well, but for historic reasons, Tether's the one that's in that pair. Is that at all yeah, tied and, to yeah. to the anonymity and 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 leverage? I mean, that's some of the narrative I've heard about. Is there extra risk at Binance to that? They there's more leverage people there. There's more people who aren't doing traditional know your customer rules, and they're using Tether as a way instead of other things. Is that all related? I think so. I, I would I would probably think so too. I mean, exactly why people choose to go to a particular venue is is going to have you know, reasons. I mean, there is definitely, I think crypto and Bitcoin have come a long way um, in terms of, you know, uh, cleaning up its act. I mean, there are, I think there are way more good actors than bad actors in there, but 
there are, will still be people that have gone in there for the wrong reason, right? If, they, if they're only there for the anonymity, well, yeah, trading somewhere like Binance and Tether might make more sense for them. Um, but I think that overtly it's, it's people in the space generally as good actors. I think you acknowledge that in your piece, right, Alex? Yeah. And listen, as you say, I mean, I often say, like, what is the case of having $100 bills? Like, the people who have $100 bills, like, it's something like 70% of the transactions in $100 bills is illegal transactions, whereas, like, 1% of the like, – I saw somebody on Twitter saying, like, 1% of the transactions in Bitcoin was illegal and 70% of $100 bill transactions are illegal. So the U.S. Mint has more challenges than the Bitcoin people. Well, yeah. I think that's probably yeah, true. Yeah, Cash is higher in than Bitcoin. Alex, if you were to say, so we talked a little bit about some of the risks here. Any other, as we talked about Tether, we talked about um, the narrative changing, the transaction fees. Um, if you were to, you know, I think the, the bull case, as Jason said, you, you think you made a case on the adoption cycle, why people are using it. Um, if, if you were to say, what makes you bearish on the adoption cycle of like where we are in the adoption cycle and sort of wanting people to sort of convert less people wanting to get access, what are there other red flags you would point to people of... I mean, of why to stay away? I, I think we kind of have to define what adoption means because in um, 2015, 2016, like Dell, for instance, took Bitcoin as payment for computers. Um, you know, there were, there were a lot of um, little uh, mom and pop shops and some bigger outlets that started taking Bitcoin as payment for goods and services over the Internet, which is the whole point. Um, and that sort of disappeared. You know, Elon Musk says he might take a payment um in Bitcoin for a car, <clears throat> but a very wealthy um, whale in Bitcoin, they're not going to buy, you know, a thousand cars. They will buy maybe one car, <clears throat> but then if they want to use their, you know, their currency, they probably have to cash out. So one huge risk is, you know, obviously whales cashing out. You have Satoshi who supposedly owns, you know, one million early Bitcoins. There is some speculation as to who that is. There's a guy in, um, in a, court battle in florida against um his, the guy named craig wright who um claims to be satoshi this the state of his former businessman is selling is suing him um for half of the bitcoins that they supposedly mined together so five hundred thousand. so if he loses that case and he has the keys to that early fortune he has to turn over five hundred thousand um btc somebody who has no interest in BTC, they just only see the dollar signs, then that, that would be, you know, a catastrophic event if 500 BTC were sold. That would be a true statement. That would be uh, a, certainly a risk 500, factor. 500,000. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, that'll be an interesting case study to watch. Everybody's wanted to know who is this Satoshi, and uh, if, if Craig is the person, that'd be really interesting. And, and, I, and I noticed that um, in... Coinbase's um, like application to IPO, um, they listed the unveiling of Satoshi as a risk factor to their business. So. That's fascinating. Let me just reintroduce our guests. We're talking with Alex Picard, Vice President of Research at Research Affiliates, Jason Guthrie, Wisdom Tree Capital Markets, Head of Digital Assets for us over in Europe. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, the Coinbase IPO also brings up a whole other issue, Jason, on the, on the capital markets, these exchanges. Um, some people are speculating this Coinbase could be a $100 billion type IPO. And we talk about sort of the frontiers of fintech and to transact the type of transaction fees they're generating, they're charging clients what like one and a half percent each way in in many ways i mean it's like if this is the new technology what's going on there um and, and i mean you're in capital markets what's 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 the story so it's yeah it's, it's interesting i think um the valuation is i think very interesting it makes it more valuable than all the u.s stock exchanges combined if, if they actually manage to achieve that in the ipo which is insane if you are able to, to, in perpetuity, clip, yes, as you say, like 1.5%, well, that's a very profitable business model. And there's maybe, I don't know, a couple of ways to, to kind of look at this. On one hand, you, um, you can say, okay, we're still in the early stage of adoption. Digital assets and crypto are going to grow. They will come under increasing uh, competition pressure, which drives down costs. We've seen this happen in every industry, everywhere, right? Particularly in technology, like what did a personal computer cost you in the 90s for what you got versus what you pay for it now, right? Things just own more, it gets more, it gets more efficient over time. And that price competition will 
push down uh, the margin that these guys get. Now, the other way to look at it is that potentially that margin is uh, more sustainable and more justifiable because in a blockchain world, there are substantially less intermediaries between like your end retail consumer and the actual asset that they hold. If I compare this to the traditional finance space, you don't just buy a share of Tesla on the stock exchange directly. You probably got a, a broker or an advisor between you and the exchange. They will probably go via a wholesale bank. There'll be at least two custody legs in the middle of this. There is a, a clearing house and a settlement system that are all taking a clip for this. Um, and more than likely, you've probably held that through a wrap solution, a funder, an ETF, and someone else has taken a fee there. Now, it's hard to do an analysis on that end-to-end -end cost for investors, but it is much, much higher than sort of what a headline number on any one of those legs looks like. And so the compression of financial services, I think, is a really interesting trend. And what consumers will bear in the long run is, is interesting. This concept of disintermediation in financial services, um, I think, is, is incredibly interesting and going to be transformative over the next couple of years. Yeah, DeFi, decentralized finance, I guess, is what they're calling all these other new tokens. Alex, are there any crypto tokens or or, or assets that you are bullish on today? If you're if you're scared about where or, or skeptical on Bitcoin is the right word, I don't know what the right word you would say, but it, it, what is there anything that you are more interested in in the crypto space? Um, well, I I'll I'll just start by saying that I'm traditionally of what was it called a big blocker. So I always was for increasing the block size of Bitcoin. So I followed this Bitcoin to Bitcoin Cash to Bitcoin SV transition. Bitcoin SV is relatively unknown and sort of like um, shunned kind of by the crypto community because it uses the Bitcoin name. But the people in Bitcoin SV would argue that it is more similar to the white paper than Bitcoin is today. You know, it has low fees. It allows for scaling. The blockchain can be used to store data. It can be used for, you know, all the applications that people talk about blockchain being used for. Blockchain is just a distributed database. So anything, any kind of data that you want to store on a blockchain it can be stored. Um, so ultimately, I think if blockchain is a technology that people want to actually use, and by people, I mean, like, businesses to increase their profit margins um, because it brings fees down, not in the case of, Coinbase, where we now have one and a half percent fees, but you know, if an exchange wanted to do trades over the blockchain, you know, settlement like within ten minutes within a blockchain mine, like that sort of stuff, I think is cool. And so, if people want to use blockchain, then ultimately we use one internet. I think ultimately we will use one blockchain. It will be the blockchain that scales the to have the highest transactions per second for the lowest fee. And I think so far. Bitcoin SV is winning in that category, but they're definitely not winning in terms of like hearts and minds of people or um, in terms of like, you know, the narrative or um, just general um, like likability of the people even involved in the project. Isn't that isn't Craig Wright the uh, the the gentleman yeah. you talked about before? I mean, yeah. I heard on yeah. another podcast that Craig is involved in it, and so that's why he, you know, if he if he was Satoshi, now he's you know coming back to this sort of new. Uh, Bitcoin SV as the new one. It, it, is, if if the price rose dramatically, would that tr change the transaction fees issue? And so there's like this inherent conflict between higher prices and higher transaction fees. No, because um, well, with the the reason for the transaction fees on BTC was because it was a uh, concerted effort to create what was called um, a fee uh, a, a fee network or a fee market. Sorry, a fee market. So there was a competition for to get your transaction into the block, because there is only one megabyte of data processed in each block, which is about every 10 minutes, you know, which is about a third of a size of a, uh, of a song stored on your computer. You know, it's not a lot of data. Um, and, and to think that Bitcoin has been constrained to only one megabyte every 10 minutes, you know, it's like disheartening to me. But, um, but in the terms of Bitcoin SV, there is no limit at all on the number of transactions that can be included in a block or in terms of the size that the block can be. All that matters is can the miners in the network handle big blocks, process all the data, send it out to the other miners in the network so that all the miners are up to date and have you know the latest blocks in the blockchain. Um, as long as they are all in sync, then you can have as many transactions as you want and the fees will be very low because ultimately it's like a cloud storage type system. And it's a cloud storage system, but instead of just trusting Amazon Web Services, 
again, it's like that Visa model that I was talking about before where you have a competition for cloud um, storage. All the miners are competing to store your data. And so that should drive prices down for like cloud storage in the long run. So it sounds like Bitcoin SV. We've got a Bitcoin SV bull. Jason, what do you what do you think? So uh, I don't inherently disagree with uh, kind of some of the values that Alex espouses, right? You know, we, we can definitely deliver on some of these uh, ways of making this a better ecosystem at the protocol level. I'm not a purist in that I think all of the value of this needs to come from the protocol, right? We, we talked to, you know, Alex mentioned hearts and minds because, and that's, I think, a really important point to dig in on because adoption, what the mass market congregates around really is what matters. We've seen, you know, Betamax versus VHS technology advancements in the past where one was arguably or technologically better than the other, but it doesn't win out because people don't use it for whatever reason, right? The ecosystem around it, the drivers of, of, of how usable it is don't fall into place. And I'm not, you know, a technologist at heart. You know, I, I don't have a view on what is or isn't better. I've got an opinion on a few things, but realistically what I'm looking for is what's the most vibrant ecosystem building up around that's going to gather the most people and add the most value to global financial services and therefore become ubiquitous. And, what, from what I see, it's happening around Bitcoin. I mean, if you come back to me in 12 months, I might tell you something different. The space changes very quickly. But as it stands now, and as I've seen it for the last couple of years, the most, you know, uh, capital being invested, intellectual capital being put to work, the number of use cases, the, the vibrancy of the combination, the commitment of the core community, that puts me behind Bitcoin. And that's why I think that in the long run is – that way is why that seems to be on the trajectory to be the long-run winner. Um, you know, there might be technicalities where, yeah, you know, I'm not disagreeing with anything Alex says here, but if you can't get people en masse using the thing, then what's the point? <laughs> that's, it's the reality of the situation, you know. It's, you're, you're sort of talking about, you know, invest in the world as it exists, not in the world that, like, you wish it to be. And, you know, that's sort of been – a little bit of a lesson for me as watching BTC, you know, everybody congregate, or congregate around BTC um, when I see, a, you know, a, a vastly um, superior technology um, in competition with it, but that nobody is interested in. So, you know, kind of let the market speak for itself. Jason, any sort of Bitcoin area stuff that we haven't covered so far you'd want to make sure you get into the conversation? Any, any, we talked a little bit about use cases, the transactions. Any, anything when you're talking to the institutional investors over in Europe, anything on this versus traditional assets that we haven't really covered? Um, nothing, nothing we haven't specifically covered, but I think you know, what, I, what I would point out to anybody that I guess is, is looking at Bitcoin and something that I spend a lot of time talking to is – uh, is kind of the learning curve associated with Bitcoin and that it's something that, that requires a kind of commitment and something that we really try to promote with everybody that we talk to. Uh, I think the very first line in Alex's paper is understand what you invest in and that's a sentiment I can get behind like 100%. Um, and then I do think there's a, a learning curve when it comes to Bitcoin. So people that are looking at Bitcoin or crypto generally or digital assets and are thinking that, hey, like this is this is complicated, we don't get it, people are saying it's a bubble, I would say to them that it's worth investing your time in, in understanding it, in taking yourself through the learning. I think that the potential with this space is just so big, it's impossible to ignore, and that if you get left behind with it because, again, it was complicated, there's some negativity in the market, you've heard XYZ News article saying that it's tulips or a bubble, I'd say persevere with it and, and you know, there are plenty of resources out there to help you with it. But I think that that journey of understanding the nuance of Bitcoin, of crypto, of digital assets, of the ecosystem being built around it, it's absolutely worth going on. Alex, what else are you focused on in research affiliates? You guys do a lot of different things. I know this was somewhat uh, uh, from from your past, maybe not quarter yeah. day to day at research affiliates, but any mm-hmm. other things that you're you're focused on you'd want to pe- draw people's attention to? Um, well, I, I research affiliates, I... Um... I, I work on a team, a signal research team. We look at asset classes, broad-based asset classes, and create um, uh, really more broad asset-based um, uh, long-short type strategies that we apply to our um, 
asset, all asset fund that we manage or that we subadvise uh, with PIMCO. And I've worked on like trading cost research um, along with um, multi in, multi-factor index research and this sort of thing. Um, I mean, I, I want to agree with, uh, J- with Jason on like, you know, going down the rabbit hole. It is, I do think that blockchain is here to stay. I think blockchain is awesome. I just don't know if Bitcoin, which it's, it's only like a brand name. It like, can that sustain, you know, billions and trillions more dollars flowing into it? Um, if all you can do with it is buy and hold. So I would just, you know, caution against thinking that you can just like get rich, like buying and holding something. Yeah, it, we're in our final two-minute countdown, so we're not a lot of room for final comments. I think one thing that I'll be – I think everybody's watching is when will fund companies, traditional fund companies – there's all sorts of filings out there of people trying to add it. I think one of the things I'll be watching, Alex, is is when does your traditional strategies ever try to go long or short, these kind of futures? Uh, that'll be a key one. I'm sure you're lobbying one way or the other uh, maybe, uh, so that'll be interesting to watch. Jason, any closing closing thoughts from you? Uh, from from the kind of fund management perspective, what I've uh, I've got my eye on is the Bitcoin ETF in the US. I think that's going to be a big mark for adoption. I think something we're all eagerly e- eagerly hanging out for. It'll be interesting if the regulators ever change their mind. Uh, and Alex, well, any closing uh, thoughts from you? Uh, no, uh, Jeremy. Thanks for having me on the show. This was a great time. No, it's it's uh, you can find uh, Alex's blog on the Research Affiliates website. Uh, it's a really interesting piece. Uh, I, I love doing this sort of the bull bear instead of just you know one way look at it and, and that you often hear on these kind of things. Uh, so it was great to get a, a little bit more skeptical take talking about the risks. Um, you know, we've been we're going to be talking next week. There's been a lot of volatility in the markets this week. Their markets are digesting the interest rate news. Just to tease out a conversation next week, we have Jim Bullard of the St. Louis Fed. He's been one of our, our most frequent Fed guests coming back on to Behind the Markets. I think it'd be really interesting to check his pulse of what's happening with rates. Is the Fed going to move? I'm not expecting any surprises from Jim. But uh, he's 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 one to you know let his feelings be known. So it'll be interesting to to do that. I'd like to thank our producer Patty Hall, uh, our, our sound engineer today, Chris Tukes. You can always listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.